I said a couple weeks ago, we talked about this idea that we are generations following Jesus together, that we are a part of a journey of being disciples of Jesus who are growing deeper in our faith, and that we are carried, we carry this out through our core values of gather, grow, give, and go. Now, if we are to be a church who is generations following Jesus together, if we are to be a church that is energized by disciple-making, by growing in our faith, by being all who God has called us to be and living in our God-given journey and purpose, then we need to be committed to it. We need to be something called all-in. And this is why what I want to do over the next several weeks, actually over the next few months, is dive into the book of James together. Uh, Now, the book of James is about how to practically, day by day, Live as committed, all-in followers of Jesus Christ. Now, the book of James, just to give you a very short snapshot into the background, it was written by James, who is believed to be the brother of Jesus. And it was written to a church that had become global. It was a church that started, yes, in, in Jerusalem, but had extended around the known world at that time and had been dispersed. And it was a global church that was struggling on their own, struggling in their own identity of what it meant to follow Jesus. It was a church that was scattered. You see, uh, the church prior to that had started going through persecution. If you go through the book of Acts, uh, you'll notice right near the very beginning of the start of the church, uh, persecution and martyrdom began to hit. And there was a guy named Stephen who was an early leader in the church, one of the deacons in the church, and he was martyred. And... Uh, at basically at the command of the religious leaders of the day by a guy named Saul, actually, who we know in biblical history uh, becomes Paul and actually plays a major role in launching the church forward. But the church at the hands of the religious leaders was persecuted, and it dispersed around the known world at the time. It was... The, the church became known as something called the diaspora, which is the, basically the spread, the dispersing of the Jewish believers around the known world. But in that scattering, in that persecution that happened, in that parting that happened, what happened is that there was division that crept in. There was confusion that crept in about what did Jesus actually teach How are we supposed to live as followers of Jesus? But beyond that, there was also conflict that came into the church as well, too. And there were some deep divides that started growing within the church. Now, what James wanted to do in his letter that he wrote, called the book of James, is that he wanted to bring them together under the banner of what true faith looks like and what what it looks like in theory, so in in the mind of basically how it plays out, and then in practice, so in actual action. Now, who here today has found that the harder you try to live right, the harder you try to live for Jesus and do what he calls you to do, the harder you try to obey, that the harder your life seems to get, the more challenging it seems to get. Am I alone in that? A few others have experienced that. The harder you try to obey, the harder life seems to get, the more stressful it seems to get. You know, a a look at the church in the day of James showed that as well, too. That as they sought to obey and be who God was calling them to be, life got harder. In fact, 
It's believed that the book of James is written around 8040 to 8045, somewhere in there. Within 20 years to 25 years, the church would be undergoing intense persecution under the hands of a Roman emperor named Nero. And Nero was not a nice guy. Uh, and I won't even go into details what he did. But let's just say intense persecution was coming. And they're already dealing with persecution and struggling. But as we look at the book of James this morning, and as we look at chapter 1, we see this key idea, which is the next slide. That as we follow Jesus, sometimes we will endure trials. Okay? As we follow Jesus, sometimes life is a bit crazy. It's a bit difficult. There are things that creep in that are a struggle. And there's this misconception in the church today that as we follow Jesus, as long as we come to Jesus and we believe in him, that our lives will be smooth like a nice serene lake with no waves. We're just smooth as glass, right? That there will never be any hiccups, never any struggles, never any trials, that our lives will be perfect. Here's the thing. Jesus actually never promised that. He never promised us a smooth, trouble-free life. In fact, we read elsewhere in the scriptures that he promised us something different. He said, in this world you will have trouble. But then he said, but take heart, I have overcome the world. But there's this idea that we will actually have trouble. And I don't know about you, but life has not been easy lately. There's been a lot of troubles. There's been a lot of stresses. There's been a lot of struggles. You know what some of mine have been, and I know that some of you have been struggling too. Jesus never promised a smooth, stress-free life. And beyond that, the church, in the day that James was writing, knew firsthand that as they followed, they would not be guaranteed a stress-free life. And in fact, James, the guy who wrote this book, James, the brother of Jesus, was martyred around AD 60 or AD 62. He was killed because of his faith and because he was a leader in the church. You see, the harder they tried to follow Jesus, the harder life seemed to get sometimes. Now, the reality is for us today, that as you and I stri uh, strive to be generations following Jesus together, as you and I strive to walk in our faith and grow deeper in our relationship with Jesus Christ, as we strive to know him more and be who he's calling us to be personally, and as we as a church try to be generations Jesus together, as we try to grow deeper in our faith and walk with Jesus, as we try to uh, be all that he is calling us to be and love him more and know him more, the reality is that in our lives individually and as a church, there will be struggles, there will be trials, there will be challenges, there will be things that come in our way that seek to throw us off. Things won't always be easy. So if you're struggling today, and today you're in one of those trials, if today you're in one of those stresses, one of those things where, quite frankly, you are sick and tired of it, you're done with it, and you want to give up on it, and where life right now is not a pleasure for you to live, and you're saying, I'm done, I can't handle anymore, and you're heavy under that weight, what I want to do is I want to give you encouragement this morning. I want to give you some encouragement that you can leave here today and know that it's going to work out. And I want to invite you this morning to turn to the book of James. It's toward the end of the New Testament, after the book of Hebrews. It's uh, only a few books away from uh, the book of Revelation, so it's right near the end. And we're going to pick up in uh, verse 2 of chapter 1 this morning. We're going to read the first uh, 12 verses. But if you have your Bibles, feel free to turn to verse 2, or you can follow along as I read it on the screen. So James chapter 1, 
verse 2. And I'm reading from the uh, CSB this morning. Here's how it reads. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. So as I read that verse, the one thing that comes to mind is this. That trials don't have to be your enemy. They don't have to be your enemy. Now, this was written to a group of people who would have viewed trials as their enemy. You see, the, the, the people that James is writing to primarily were Jewish believers who were scattered abroad around the globe. They were steeped in Judaism and some of the philosophies of Judaism. And in Judaism, in the practice of, of the people of Israel, was this philosophy called, and I'm going to try to say it right, Lex Talionis. Now, Lex Talionis is just a fancy, I think, I'm going to say Latin. Hopefully I'm right on that word. I'm getting the nod from the language specialist here, so I'm good there. Uh, it's a fancy Latin word for basically a theory that, or a practice that existed in their time. You'd know it as, you know when the Bible says, tooth for tooth, eye for an eye? That's what it is. The idea is that if you do something that's wrong, that you should get paid back with an equal payment for that wrong action. And it was something that was steeped in Jewish culture. A life for a life, right? Now, it was believed that God operated on that principle too. That he operated on something called the retribution principle. So if you lived a good life, if your life was blessed, if you had wealth, if you had health, and things were smooth, that meant that you were doing things right, and God was happy with you, and your life was wonderful, and you must have been obeying God, and everything must be just perfectly in line. But if you were dealing with struggles and challenges, much like we read about Job in the, in the book of Job, who had a lot of his stuff taken away from him in trials and challenges, that there must be something wrong with your life, and you must be screwing up somehow, and you must have angered God, and you must deserve everything that's being poured on you, which is what, if you recall from the book of Job, what Job's friends tried telling him. And that was a principle that was steeped in the culture of that day, this idea that those who did good were rewarded, and those who did wrong were not. This idea of eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So they would have believed this. And what James wanted people to know, what he wanted his audience to know is that, yes, while sometimes trials and hardships can be a reflection of what you do, so if you go and you do something that's wrong, yes, there will be a consequence for it, but in our lives, when we go through hardship, what he wants his audience to understand is that not everything that happens that ne that's negative is actually a result of how you live in a negative form. That sometimes trials happen, and there's no uh, ignition in the same way. There's no negative situation that causes it. Sometimes it just happens. And he says in uh, verse 2, he says what? Consider it. That's how he starts off. Consider it. And when he says consider it here, <coughs> what he's saying is don't look at the circumstance in front of you. Don't look at that challenge in front of you and go, oh, what am I going to do? Oh, no. Look through it. Look through the circumstance. Reflect on the circumstance. Examine it and see the big picture. The idea of considering it is, if you want a, uh, um, a mental picture, <clears throat> I was flying this week. 
And I was just looking out the airplane window flying from uh, Edmonton to London. I was flying over one of the Great Lakes, actually three of them at one point. And as I was going over, uh, I think it was Lake Superior. I think it was Lake Superior. Or maybe Michigan, I don't know. It's not that important. But I could see down there Duluth uh, in Minnesota. And I could see uh, some other cities. And I could see the plains of Wisconsin and Michigan. Now, when you're down there and you're driving in your car, you just see what's kind of around you. And albeit, even though the land is somewhat flat out there and you can see a few miles, you can't see everything. Now, from the plain, I could see the whole Great Lake there. I could see the shores on either side, and I could see the end way down there. And suddenly this big, 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 huge lake didn't look so big anymore. But that's the kind of idea that we have here when it says considerate. Don't be looking like this at your trial. Get the big 35,000 high foot view of it and see the bigger picture and in it have an occasion to find joy. So that's the idea of consider it. Get the big picture. And he says, so consider it what? Great joy or pure joy. Now, when we think about joy, oftentimes in church circles, we're guilty of this. We think it means that we come into church with a big smile on our face and, you know, your life might stink. Five minutes to church, you might be fighting with your spouse in the car and things might be tense, or you might have just gotten a phone call before you came that is rocking you to your core because of some very bad news, and you're depressed, and you're down, and you're conflicted, and as soon as you walk in the church, hi, I'm doing good. People say, how are you? Oh, I am so wonderful. God is good. Life is good. Yet in your side, you're, you're being ripped apart by it. That's not joy. That's actually deceiving, but we'll talk about it another day. That's not joy. Joy isn't this giddy sort of thing that's based on temporary circumstance. It's not this thing of where you come to church feeling down and out and depressed, but you think, well, you know what? Maybe thinking about the lunch I'm going to have at Norm's Cafe afterwards is going to cheer me up. So you start thinking about your lunch thinking, oh, that soup and salad, or hey, that burger's going to be really good, and oh, I can't wait to get it. And it gives you this temporary joy. That's not it. It's not this temporary sort of thing that's based on one circumstance. It's not a fake happiness that we put on when life stinks. But what it is, is it's, it's this peace and this joy and this contentment and this inner sense of calmness that comes from, first of all, understanding the complete and long-term picture. So looking at the big picture view again and asking yourself the question, how can I find purpose in this trial? It's also this idea of calmness that comes from relief in comparison with the circumstance, where you can look at the situation and you can see how you can find relief in it and how it could be worse or how things might work out. But beyond that, this word joy, when I actually went back to the original language, when I think of joy, I think of it as being an action, something you do. You're joyful. It's something that you just do. Actually, when you read the original language, the word there for joy is a noun, meaning it's a person, a place, or a thing. Joy is something that you put on. It's something that you become. It's a character trait that you embody. Now, when I say about joy being a noun, my mind first goes to, who is the epitome of joy? Jesus. Jesus came to be joy. Jesus is joy. We looked at that a few weeks ago before Christmas from Isaiah uh, about Jesus bringing joy. 
And Jesus is the epitome of joy. He's the personification of it. And as we walk with Jesus, here's the thing. As we take on his character and we become shaped by him and strive to be more and more and more like him, his joy fills us so that even when life stinks and we're feeling heavy weighted down, we can have an overall sense of peace and contentment and satisfaction, and I would say joy, knowing that's in God's hands. So we are to consider it pure joy, then it says, when we experience various trials. Now, there are some who are out there who have bought into the idea that the more trials I bring onto myself, the more hard I make my life, the more godly I will become. So I will look for trials, I will look for hardships, and I will look to suffer because suffering is a mark of godliness. Now, when I read this here, it says when you experience various trials, it's not this idea of going out and looking for trouble. In fact, there is a Greek word that I'm not going to try to even pronounce here that talks about experience, and the word there implies unwelcome and unexpected visitor. And actually, the word that is used there is the exact same word that's used in Luke chapter 10, verse 30. And you might know the story of the Good Samaritan where the man is going on the Jericho road and he is robbed. And he falls to a bunch of robbers on that road. The same word that's used for the falling to the robbers is the same word that's used for when you experience various trials. This unwelcome, unwanted visitor that just comes. So your trials are unexpected. Now, the word for trials here in the original Greek is this word pirasmos. Now, there's a word that comes out of it that you will probably be familiar with. It's pirates, which we get the word pirate from or attacker from. So the idea is that we have an unexpected pirate or an unexpected attacker who's unwelcome, who when we do not expect it will come and take us, who will come and bring trial. And the message in this first verse is this, that unexpected and unwelcome attacks will come. But when they do, use it as an occasion to search for true joy. And the reason can be found in the, in the, in the next passage we're going to read, uh, in verse 3. Here's how it reads. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. We'll take the next slide. Here's the thing. Your trials, they can bring long-term benefit. The reason why you can find joy in them, the reason why you can say, you know, they're not my enemy is because they can actually bring long-term benefit. And that's a hard pill to swallow. That admittedly would have been a hard pill for the people in James's day to swallow because they're going through persecution. The church is scattering. And some of them are in fear of their lives. And they're told, hey, don't worry about it. Just consider it pure joy. That'd be a hard pill to swallow. I'd imagine for a lot of us today, when you're going through your stuff and your life feels like it's going to fall apart, me standing up here and saying, hey, guess what? Just consider it pure joy. Your reaction may not be to consider it pure joy, but you might want to knock me in the teeth. Because it's not, it's not a pleasant message. How can I, up here, who doesn't know your life, say, consider it pure joy? That's hard. It's a hard pill to swallow. What he's saying here is consider it joy because God wants to use that trial. He wants to use that struggle, even though God may not be the cause. And I don't believe that God necessarily causes those trials in our lives. 
I don't believe that he comes and purposely seeks to inflict stuff on us. But God can take those trials and he can redeem them. So even when you're going in the midst of all the crud and the stuff you're dealing with in your daily life, God can take those and he can redeem them and he can bring something of beauty out of them. And that thing of beauty is that you growing and you developing in character and in faith. The Bible actually speaks of this, and I'll take the next slide, in Romans 8.28, where we are given a promise here in Scripture. Sometimes the promise is misquoted, but it says this, that we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. So the message in this is this, that even when today your life stinks, when you're struggling and you're going through trial, and you don't know how it's going to work out, and when, quite frankly, you don't want to even think about tomorrow, that even in the midst of your pain, if you love Jesus, if you're following him and you're walking his way, all things work together for your good. You may not see it today, but here's the beautiful thing is God's got a plan for your life. He knows the number of your days. He knows everything about you. And he knows you're coming and you're going, the Bible says. And he's got a plan for you. And if you trust him in the trial, he causes all things to work together for your good to those who are called according to his purpose, to those who love God. As we think about this idea of trials, we see that when we, when we stand in our trial, when we're tested, it produces something called endurance. Once again, endurance is a noun. It's a character trait. It's something we become, that we put on. And the definition here is someone who is not swerved from a deliberate purpose. This idea of, uh, of endurance is this idea of not giving up regarding your faith. Now, imagine with me this morning, the early church who would have heard this message. What if they gave up? What if they decided, you know what, hey, this persecution thing stinks. Quite frankly, I want to keep my head today. I'm going to walk away from this message. What if the early church walked away? What if they gave up? Because the going got rough. Think of what would have happened to the church today. Would the message have gone out? Would it have spread? I don't know. But there's a value in enduring in trial. There's a value to it. It produces this endurance. It produces this, this ability to not give up. And then he says what? Let endurance have its full effect. You see, there's, there's, a, there's a tendency that we have as humans when pain comes to pull away from the pain as fast as we can. Because we don't like suffering. We don't like pain. That's why, you know, a lot of us, when we get a prick on the hand, when we're working on something, we pull our hand away. Because we have a reflex, right? And we don't like pain. We don't like suffering. And we like to pull away from pain and suffering and trials. But what he's saying here is don't cut the trial short. Because when you cut the trial short, when you use, I want to say, the get out of free jail card, or get out jail free card, when you use that card to get out of your trial, you miss out on something that God wants to do in your life. Yes, it's unpleasant. Yes, it stings. Yes, it hurts. But if you endure to the end, there's something that happens. And it says here that the result is that you will be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So as I was studying this week, the image that came to mind was that when metal is refined, it's heated to a very, very, very hot temperature. And I, I've looked up before, and I can't remember what the temperature is, but it's really, really hot. 
and it causes all the impurities to be basically separated from the metal so they can scoop the impurities off and be left with a pure metal form. But it's a lot of heat, it's a lot of pressure. But unless that metal goes through that heating process and completes the process, it can't be refined. And for us as followers of Jesus, sometimes we go through trials, but here's the thing. Unless we stick it through and go through the trial, we won't experience the purification that waits on the other side. Now, the result in our life isn't perfection in this life. It's not that because we go through this trial today, we're going to be perfect tomorrow. But the idea is that there is spiritual maturity that comes as we endure, as we press in, and there's a completeness that comes. Uh, I'm going to take the next slide. I like how 1 Peter 1, 6-7 reads. It says, You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's not easy. It's rough. But in your trial, God wants to do something in your life that will bring something of beauty out of it if you endure. So how then can we count it all joy and how can we endure? Well, I'm going to take the next verse, uh, verse 5. And here's how it reads. Now if any of you lacks wisdom... He should ask God, who gives it to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. So here's the thing. God gives you wisdom to navigate what you are facing. Now, when I first read this verse many years ago, and even up to a while ago, it sounded like it was talking about something completely different, that it was a break in context, and it was talking about something other than suffering. But actually, this is in the context of trials. This is in the context of hardships. And what James wants you to see here is that as you are enduring this trial, as you're enduring this hardship, what you need to do is you need to ask God for wisdom. And if you're finding that you lack the wisdom, you just need to ask God for it. Now, the wisdom isn't a freedom from the trial. Asking God for wisdom doesn't suddenly lift you out of the trial so you don't have to experience it. But what he's saying here is if any of you lack wisdom, ask for it because as you get the wisdom of God... As you see through God's eyes, you can see the path to endurance. As you see with God's eyes, you can see the path to endurance. And it says, to those who ask, God will give wisdom. He gives generously and he gives ungrudgingly. Or some uh, translations say, without fault. So when when you're going through the hardship and you say, God... I need your wisdom to endure this. He didn't say, well, mm, naughty you. Oh, boy. I can't believe that you're going through a hard time again. How come you're asking me? Like, didn't I give you wisdom like last week? Isn't that enough for the whole month? Like, shame, shame, shame. Or, oh, you know, I got, uh, oh, a few billion other people that I got to give wisdom to today. And uh, you're kind of on the low end of the pole. So if I got enough, when it's all done, I'll give it to you. No, he gives to us generously. There's no end to his wisdom. And if he asks for it, he pours it on you. He pours it on you so thick and generously, and he doesn't find fault in you when you ask for it. He's happy to give it to you. And wisdom is so powerful because it isn't just wisdom. It isn't just like going to a library and reading a self-help book and having the light bulb turn on and getting it and having earthly wisdom. When he talks about wisdom here, I, I, it's, 
Not that, but it's actually God's presence living inside of you. I'm going to read verse 5 again. And it says, now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. Now there's another verse that if you want to go ahead two slides, that it sounds a lot familiar, familiar with in the book of Luke. Chapter 11, verse 11 through 13, it says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God promises here in this, in this verse in Luke that if you ask for the Holy Spirit, because he's a good father, he will give it to you. And when you go through actually the Old Testament and you look at all the times the Holy Spirit came upon people and gave them wisdom, there's this phrase, the spirit of wisdom, it refers to the Holy Spirit coming and filling people and giving them extraordinary supernatural wisdom. And it comes from the Holy Spirit filling and indwelling somebody. Now, here's, here's the news for us today. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, what the Bible says is that you are sealed as a guarantee that cannot be taken away with someone called the Holy Spirit living in you. So you have the Holy Spirit. He's given you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's already in you, wanting to empower you, wanting to give you everything you need for this life. He's already there. And the Holy Spirit brings wisdom. So today, if you don't feel like you got any, guess what? The Holy Spirit's in you, and he's waiting for you to ask. And because he's already there, there you're guaranteed it. But you got to ask. Ask for wisdom. And the Holy Spirit will give it. The Holy Spirit will give it. Here's the thing. You're not alone. You have a helper. In fact, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit before he comes as the helper. You have a helper who lives in you, who will give you the wisdom and the strength you need. Trust him. I'm going to keep reading in James. Let's read in verse 6 here. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. So here's the key, trust God, not yourself. James says that in order to operate in this wisdom, in order to receive this wisdom that, that God will give you through the Holy Spirit who already lives in you, that you need to have confidence in the character of God. You need to have confidence that God will answer and that then in that confidence you live out in faith what you already believe. You don't operate in doubt. And when I say doubt, I'm talking about living in this tension of trusting God versus trusting my own wisdom. You see, what doubt will do in your life, if you operate in this place of doubt where you don't trust God, what this verse compares it to is basically like the waves on the water that are driven around by the wind. And they have no control where they go, but it's the wind that blows them around. When I think about wind blowing things around, I think about the time that we were basically in a tornado in Saskatchewan at our place before we moved to Ontario. 
And I remember that day when it came, and I remember the winds and how they howled and how strong they were. And I looked out our window, and you could see the trees going sideways practically as the wind was blowing them around. Branches flying everywhere, shingles blowing off homes. The wind was so strong that we couldn't even open our door, and we were trying to open it in. It created such a suction that you couldn't open the, the door inwards. And it actually took the ball diamonds behind our place, ripped them out of the ground, and threw the uh, dugouts, threw the wooden dugouts. And it destroyed everything in its path. You see, the idea of wind coming along and blowing us around is a powerful image. That if you are not rooted with a strong foundation, you will be blown about. And if you're operating in doubt, then you're operating without a foundation which to stand. And when the trials come, they're going to knock you over like the wind in a storm. Here's the thing. God doesn't honor requests made for wisdom when you have already convinced yourself that he will fail you. And the reason why is because you've already convinced yourself that he's not going to come through. And in that, you've already chosen your wisdom above his. And you've chosen what's comfortable to you and what you think he's going to do. And you don't actually want what he wants to offer you. He calls it double-minded. And what happens is it leads to instability when we choose our wisdom above his. I want to keep reading in verse 9 here. It says, let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass. Its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. So the idea here is this, that circumstances are temporary. As you endure trials, remember, circumstances are temporary. Uh, James here refers to culture, he refers to ec economy, because that was the language of the people. It was relatable to the people in those days. You see, 90% plus of the people who were receiving this message were in poverty. They lived in abject poverty. And they lived in a setting where if they weren't rich, others were, and others were taking advantage of them because they were rich. But when he speaks about money here, he's actually speaking to a larger principle. He's not just saying, oh, here's something about money. He's actually speaking to a larger principle that circumstances are temporary. He talks about this idea that all life fades. That, you know, the riches of that rich person fades away, and the poverty that the poor person's going through, it all fades away. And everything of life fades away except for God. The purposes of the God stand, which will stand for, forever. There's a verse I'm going to put up. It's from Psalm 33. And here's how it reads. I love this verse. Psalm 33, 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. See, here's the thing. God stands forever. Everything else in life will fade. Even your circumstances now, whether they're good or whether they're bad, they will pass away. But God stands forever. He talks about the the rich, let them boast in his humiliation because let them boast in their riches right now because they are going to fade away and they will have humiliation or being brought down. Or let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation. So be okay with struggling because God will come and he'll bring exaltation. That's what he's saying here. Life is temporary. All will fade. So the question for you and I today is, do we rebel against our lot in life? Do we look at the hand that we've been dealt, and do we rebel? Do we 
begrudge God, say, God, how could you do this to me? God, why did you let this happen? God, how is it you give me such stuff that I have to deal with on a day-to-day basis? God, don't you care? And do we find ourselves rebelling against our lot in life? Do we curse who we are thinking, or do, do we curse who we are thinking that we are condemned to this hardship? Or do we rejoice in all that we have done for ourselves? We sit there and say, oh, well, look at how wonderful my life is. Look at all I've done for myself. Oh, I've done a good job. Like, are we cursing ourselves? Are we rejoicing? What are we doing? Here's the thing. Circumstances, these trials we're going through, I'm going to take the next verse up on the slide. These trials we're going through are light. They're momentary. They pass. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So when you're exhausted from the trial, when you're worn right down, you're like, I am tired of this. You can still take heart because this will pass. And compared to the beauty of eternity that awaits for you, it is nothing. I want to keep reading in verse 12 here final verse this morning. It says, blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So here's the thing. Keep your focus on eternity. Why do we endure? Well, eternity. Why do we trust God and receive his wisdom? Because there's an eternity waiting for us. I mean, not only will this life work out a lot better for you and be more manageable and have more peace in your life today, but those who follow Jesus and endure in trials and have faith and do not fall away, according to this verse, are promised an eternal reward beyond the grave. That when you face eternity and you enter heaven with Jesus Christ in his presence, that there's a reward that waits for those who endure. It is a fight and challenge, yes. It is strenuous, yes. It is stressful, yes. And there are days where you're going to want to give up, yes. But there's something greater waiting in eternity for those who endure and develop that unwavering character. I'm going to put the key idea back up on the slide here this morning. It's this. That as we follow Jesus, sometimes we will endure trials. I'm going to invite the music team to come up. You know, as we talk about being a committed, all-in follower of Jesus, and as we talk about being a church that is all-in around being who Jesus calls us to be, what trials are you facing today? What trials are we facing as a church today? What are you going through that seeks to derail you from being who God has called you to be? You know, I could say a lot here, but I'm just going to leave concise. You're not alone. God is with you. He wants to give you, well, he's already, if you're a follower of him, he's already given you his Holy Spirit who lives in you. And his wisdom is there waiting to be asked for so that you can know how to handle the trial. And in the hardship, as hard as it is today to go through, God wants to bring something of beauty out of your life and into the lives of others. You know, 
I'm not going to mention names, but I had a conversation with somebody recently who's going through a trial, going through a hardship, and they said that every time they meet with people and they endure, and they're, they're t- people ask them about what's going on, they say, well, you don't look like you're going through this. They say, yeah, but it's because of God. If they say, you know, you can tell that their, their mind is just spinning with that. They're not sure how to answer that. But there's something that's being done there in those lives, that there's a seed being planted. A friend of mine recently told me this. He said, you know, when you're going through trials, one of the marks of spiritual maturity is, well, how quick are you willing to give it over to God? And the other mark is, can you say, God, thank you for what you're going to accomplish through this trial? And that's hard because, hey, who wants to do that? Because it's hard. Who wants to be thankful? And being thankful doesn't erase the pain, but there's a beauty in being able to say, God, thank you for what you're going to accomplish through this trial. I was having another conversation this week with someone who was going through uh, some health challenges of their own, and what they said to me was this, is that, you know, maybe as I go through treatments, maybe as I go through uh, all the medical stuff, who knows who I can be a friend with and share hope with as I'm going. I thought, yeah, that's great. So yeah, this is a trial, but God wants to do something through it. And the challenge for you is this, is that as you follow Jesus, it may not be easy, but be encouraged that God wants to do something through you. It's something beautiful. Don't derail it. Don't cut it short. Let endurance have its full effect and see what Jesus wants to do in and through you. Would you lead us? I invite you to stand with us. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow you. Whom you love, I'll love. How you serve, I'll serve. If this life I lose, I will follow you. I will follow you, yeah. All oh, your ways are good, all oh, your ways are sure. I will trust in you alone, higher than my sight, high above my life. Trust in you alone, in you alone. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow you. Whom you love, I'll love. How you serve, I'll serve. If this life I lose, I will follow you.
leave you with one more verse. Thanks. May the God of peace who brought, who brought back the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus, from the dead, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing to do his will, by developing in us what pleases him through Jesus Christ, to, be, to him be the glory forever and ever, always. Amen. God will give you the strength to endure whatever trials you're going through today. Go in peace.